This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. IBM sets quantum computing on commercialization path. And Microsoft and Facebook offer GPU server designs. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell. That's Michael Feldman. Michael, This Week in HPC, this is some interesting news today. You know, we had the, the OCP summit going on, and we're going to get to some news from that. But to me, the, the really big one I want to talk about is news coming out of IBM regarding a commercialization plan for what they're calling universal quantum computing or the first universal quantum computers. Now, this will be in contrast to the D-Wave systems we talked about many times before. D-Wave has very large quantum annealing supercomputers that go up to 2,000 qubits. IBM currently has a 5-qubit system available over IBM Cloud, but IBM claims this is a true universal quantum or qubit system that uses pairwise quantum entanglement to open a, a whole new realm of quantum computing. Right, and, and that feature makes it uh, a lot more general purpose for some of these algorithms that, that people have been talking about, the annealing uh, has a certain capability, but the universal quantum computers is really what people are are going for. And there's been a lot of work in this area over the last 12 months. I mean, IBM's not the only one working on this. Obviously, we've we've heard from from Intel, Microsoft, Google, and, and a few others that have very significant projects in this area. The interesting thing here about IBM is that they've sort of established not a really concrete roadmap, but they sort of put their stake in the ground and they're saying, we're going to have a commercial system in a few years, and this is how big it's going to be, and this is what it's going to do. Yeah, they've stated that within a few years, where a few is some non-determinate number of years, they're going to commercialize uh, universal quantum computing systems of up to 50 qubits. Now, let's talk about this in the context of uh, what a universal quantum computer might do or what they claim it will do uh, relative to the quantum annealing uh, technology that D-Wave has promoted previously. With the D-Wave systems that are out there, what they're best at is optimization kinds of problems. Each qubit in the system is good at exploring its own portion of, of an overall space and looking for optimal solutions. So the mental construct I have for that in my own head is that if I had some uneven surface and dropped 2,000 marbles onto it, each marble could roll to its own local low point on the surface of its own accord. And chance, the more marbles I have, the better the chances that one of the marbles is finding the, the global optimal solution for the whole space. And, and they've been excellent at solving those sorts of problems, but none of the marbles or qubits in that metaphor is working together with any other marble or qubit. And with the universal quantum uh, computer, uh, what you have is the, the ability for these qubits to now start exploring parts of the solution space together. And what IBM claims is that for every uh, n bits that you have, n qubits that you have in the system, that your system is then able to explore a potential solution space of two to the n systems, which for a five qubit system like they currently have available doesn't sound so impressive. It's only 32 possible solutions off of the five inputs. 
But as the n value starts going up, by the time you get to a 50 qubit system, 2 to the 50th possible solutions is quite a lot. Right, and that's been the challenge with these universal quantum systems is, is building up the qubit counts because basically you want these things to interact, but the, the very fact that you want them to, to interact makes it harder. So you've got to deal with things like error correction, coherence, and, and things that make it very difficult to add more and more qubits. So they're, they're at this level where, and they're not alone with this, where people have built a few qubits and, and it seems to work. But uh, the, the challenge here is to build this thing up into more qubits, get the, get the interconnect topology and the interconnect technology working so that these things can work together. And, and that's, a, uh, that's a longer project, but they feel confident enough. They're at the point now where they can say that within a few years, they're going to have something at this 50 qubit level, which which actually uh, says that you're going to have you're going to be able to do algorithms that basically you could not do on conventional computers, no matter what size it is. Because once you get this two to the n thing working for you, and you build up enough of these, you just have you're going to be able to, to tackle certain things that just couldn't happen on a digital system. Yeah, it's maybe worth revisiting for our listeners the basic concept of a quantum computer, all of our conventional computing up to date that we now have to call conventional computers, right? Boring old regular computers are all based on the idea of, of bits, which are switches that can be either on or off. And every one of those is a zero or a one. And all of those zeros and ones start adding up to the bits and the bytes and the megabytes and exabytes that make up all of our supercomputers and everything that runs through them. A qubit, or quantum computers based on qubits, or quantum bits, where they rely on the fact that quantum particles can be in something called superposition. A, a single quantum bit can be not only zero or one, it could be both zero and one, or neither zero nor one, or really any probabilistic combination of zero and one. So any single qubit can, in some sense, take on an infinite number of different states. It takes on a superimposed uh, combination of zero and one that can mean a lot of different things, which might blow your mind a little bit, but all of the quantum physicists assure us that it's true. And building a quantum computer, you go beyond the simple problem of needing to understand quantum mechanics, but you also have to take on all of the difficult things about isolating these quantum bits in a system, keeping them locked in place, controlling them, and shielding them from things like go oh, cosmic interference. Uh, so you get in either the D-Wave case or the IBM case or any of these other research cases, these uh, these cabinets that are shielded from cosmic radiation and the interior of the cabinet is colder than interstellar space, kept close to absolute zero to hold all of these quantum particles in place. Right, and, and this, this allows you, this superposition capability allows you to do uh, some very interesting algorithms. And, and the one they talk about most, sort of the low-hanging fruit there, is being able to characterize uh, the, the the energy profiles of large molecules. I mean, right now, of course, you can do that with supercomputing to some extent. You could uh, basically it's a brute force where you, you you calculate the the energy states of of all the atoms and you sort of uh, put this thing together. But as these molecules become larger, uh, eventually you, you you run out of compute and actually you run out of it fairly quickly because 
organic molecules or, or molecules of, of any size are just too large to sort of characterize all the energy states and all the interactions. That's something quantum computing can do very well because it, it basically mimics sort of the quantumness of those molecules. I mean, it's, it's basically the, 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 the model of, of how those energy states work. So you can do uh, applications like that that, that uh, are very well suited to that. But there are also things like, you know, it, related to that are things like drug and material discovery. There's all sorts of uh, financial services applications you can think of. And there's also all these things we've been talking about as far as artificial intelligence and cybersecurity and all these things that, that, again, now we do with conventional computing, but we can do much more sophisticated versions with the, with the superposition capability of, of qubits. That's exactly right. Uh, one of the IBM engineers who was briefing us on the technology did, I think, an excellent job summarizing the types of applications they're looking for here are ones where you have a relatively small number of inputs and you're looking for a small number of outputs, but the number of possible solutions in between is very large. Uh, so you get things like this molecular modeling uh, in, uh, in computational chemistry or, or quantum chemistry where you're looking at what are all of the possible energy states of uh, all of the, uh, the components of a given molecule. There aren't that many different inputs, but the number of possible states and combinations of states in between is quite large. You also see these applications in material sciences or as you were alluding to with cybersecurity or, or stated more pointedly, cyber attack, uh, factoring large numbers. Uh, you're, you're given one large number. It's going to have only a few factors. Go find them. Well, the number of possibilities in between is huge. It's just that only one of the answers is right. Right. Now, what, what IBM didn't really reveal along this line, even though they've, they've given sort of this short timeline for when they're going to, to have these things and when they're going to be selling them, as far as progression on how to get there. Right now, they've got a five-qubit system. Um, when I talked to, to Dave Turk about this, he said there's – They've got some uh, a lot of experimental systems in house right now that that are above that five qubit uh, value, um, but these are all in IBM research. They don't quite know which one, which of those technologies is going to to make it out. Um, so there's a path there, but they they don't quite know what that path is going to be or the the eventual technology. There, there's some variation of probably these superconducting qubits. Um, that, that they're developing now, but um, as far as the interconnect topology, the materials used in those in those chips, uh, that that's still up for grabs. I mean, what he what he did say that the progression to that large system will involve probably these systems being used as sort of an accelerator for conventional computing, for at least the near term. They'll they'll basically parcel off some of these algorithms that can't be done on on uh, these binary computers out to this other machine. And then uh, you know they'll come back and do their regular conventional computing. They won't be standalone machines doing everything. Uh, at least uh, initially, they'll they'll be accelerations that are accelerators for uh, certain types of applications that that need this capability. It's going to be interesting to watch. In any case, Michael, uh, quantum computing really starting to to take off. It seems, and I think. Uh, over the next decade, it's it's going to be interesting to watch, and we'll all still be around to watch it, we hope. Yep. 
So also this week in HPC was the uh, OCP Summit, the Open Compute Project Summit, which on the hyperscale side of things has is, is, uh, been really evolving quite rapidly, including all of the advancement in machine learning and artificial intelligence. And one thing that you point out in your articles on top500.org is that we can always expect to see some new news and configurations coming out of that. And in this case, we've got both Microsoft and Facebook coming out with new OCP specs. And in this case, they're for, uh, well, not even really servers, uh, 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 um, accelerator platforms that are stuffed full of GPUs. Right. They're basically expansion boxes. So these are, uh, they don't have any host CPUs inside them. They're basically, uh, uh, in fact, Facebook calls them just a bunch of GPUs in, in their version. Um, so they're basically connected to a host uh, via PCI e-link, and then you access those GPUs uh, remotely like that, and you pick how many GPUs you run. Now, both of these systems, um, at least on the surface, look fairly similar. They they put eight uh, NVIDIA Tesla P100 GPUs in a single box. They have they're connected via PCIe to to a host. Um, internally, they're they're somewhat different though, and the details there I think are going to be lost on a lot of people unless the you know, you look at the exact spec, but basically they let you um, sort of mix and match the ratios of CPUs and GPUs you want because they're basically an expansion box. So you get to choose if you want, you know, if you want one CPU host to use all eight GPUs or if you've got an application that just needs one GPU and you can, and you have other hosts that, that can share the remaining GPUs in this. But they're similar in the sense that they're all based on this NVIDIA P100 and they have Eight, eight, uh, eight of these devices in them at once. Now, the odd thing is, uh, you know, I guess it sort of begs the question, these are supposed to be standards, and, you know, why didn't Microsoft and Facebook get together and say, let's, let's define one standard for an GPU box based on P100s? I think we basically have the same thing in mind, which is, you know, mostly machine learning types of applications. Why don't we make a single standard, and then we'll have a, you know, a larger ecosystem of, of component makers and builders to build these things. Yeah, it's funny when you look at the notion of these OCP standards. I, I, I have a hard time with that word in this regard because what it essentially winds up feeling like to me is you've. It, it's actually a, a way for these hyperscale companies to put out an RFP. This is what we'd like to buy, and it's really for for just them, unless someone else wants it, I guess. But it, right. it would be akin to me describing exactly how to build my ideal sandwich. I like this kind of bread. I like this brand of salami cut this thick. I like this much mayonnaise and these other toppings. And I put that out into the universe and anyone who cares to make me my ideal sandwich, well, I might or might not buy it depending on whether that's the best deal I get. Yeah, but the the rationale there is you would hope that your idea would would uh, attract a lot of other people and there would be this, you know, this nice standard that everybody would like and everybody would like these sandwiches. So you'd get some competition in the ecosystem. You get a lot of people that sort of working together and you everybody would be well served. Here, it's like the individual hyperscale companies are being served. Like you said, it's sort of like an RFP. And the, like you said, the, 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 the definition of this as a standard is a little bit clouded. I mean, they're open source hardware definitions, so in that sense, they're standard. But they're not standard in the, 
in the in the general meaning of that term where you have like one version of something that everybody sort of adheres to and and decides that this is this is the uh this is the model we're all going to work from so um it's a little bit odd and i i have to admit that that ocp has been a little confusing to me um but the fact that these hyperscale companies are so large and have such market pull means they can do something like this and and fairly effectively and they don't seem to to care so much about actually making true standards across the industry. They, they care more about that they have their infrastructure served the way they, they want it to be uh, served. Well, I think that's certainly the case where any of these tier one hyperscale companies, if they're going to buy um, servers in lots of $100 million or more, that's on the order of what we think of as a large supercomputer purchase, a really large supercomputer purchase. And you get to to call out an RFP and say, this is exactly how I want it built. And whoever serves my needs with the best deal is going to get the business. But it it is definitely uh, more of the power on the demand side in this case. Now, with regards to that, I think it is interesting that we're now seeing OCP configurations that are that are um, uh, chock full of GPUs that uh, machine learning has become important enough that uh, we're, we're starting to see these uh, booster, accelerator, expansion chassis getting their own OCP configurations. Yeah, that is interesting. It, it, it sort of shows sort of the coming of age of GPUs and machine learning in this space. Now, I think it's worthwhile mentioning that if the Microsoft version of this uh, gets inserted into their public cloud Azure, we could also see this being used for people doing HPC type of workloads in a, in a public cloud setting as well. But uh, certainly both of these announcements that are emphasized the machine learning aspects of these things. And, and that, that's not surprising because we know the machine learning is ver- a very heavy user of GPU. So these HGPU systems become very useful for doing a lot of these training computations. Um, and, and that's why they... I think we're gonna we're gonna see more systems like this. Even though it's a disaggregated system, uh, it's something that's that's going to be useful for these these hyperscalers since they have to sort of mix and match different parts of their their infrastructure with with sort of their machine learning uh, application areas. Excellent stuff, Michael. As always, yep. thanks for another couple of fun stories. We'll talk to you again next week. Very good. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.